following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Proverbs 19. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he sins who hastens with his feet. The foolishness of a man twists his way, and the heart frets against the Lord. Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. Many entreat the favor of nobility, and every man is a friend to one who gives. gifts. All the brothers of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with word, yet they abandon him. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are continual dripping. Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. A man of great wrath will suffer punishment, for if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. Listen to counsel and receive instruction, that you may be wise in your latter days. There are many plans in a man's heart, nevertheless the Lord's counsel, that will stand. What is desired in a man is kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl, and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Strike a scoffer, and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding, and he will discern knowledge. He who mistreats his father and chases away his mother is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. A disreputable witness scorns justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Judgments are prepared for scoffers, and beatings for the backs of fools. Proverbs 19. All right, well, good evening again. We'll dispense with this little guy here. We're going to be heading over to Matthew 3 in just a few moments. But before I get there, I had a couple of questions. I want to take a whack at them and see uh, if I can answer them well and not get myself into too much hot water or trouble. So um, the first uh, question that I wanted to answer was, uh, by the way, welcome again to those of you that are online. I hope that you're enjoying the service and uh, that you could uh, hear all that very, very well. We're still working through our sound um, uh, audio problems, and uh, we think we've got, we're getting it narrowed down, so that's good. Our first question uh, actually was uh, brought to my attention this morning. Uh, you might recall in one part of the service this morning that I was discussing the matter of the importance of regeneration in the life of a person who is to hear and understand Scripture. In other words, regeneration is essential. It is an absolute necessity for someone to know God, to be saved in order to understand the Scripture. And I illustrated that with another like idea um, that brought up the question. And I said something along this lines. I said that it's like somebody who is claiming, who says, you know, I, I think I was saved when I was a young person, but I just simply cannot overcome sin in my life. Some sin is besetting me. Uh, it's, it's, it's impossible for me to overcome this. And I'm 
in my mind, I was thinking of an addictive kind of, of sin, uh, something that you can imagine uh, would be troubling a, a soul, um, and they have guilt about it. And, uh, but, you know, the presence of guilt doesn't necessarily mean that there is salvation there. Uh, you know, people ought to have guilt, and many do have guilt over bad things that they've done, but they don't know the Lord any more than the pagan down the street who doesn't have a, a whit of guilt at all. Um, and so, but the question arose, well, how can you say that uh, if, it's, if it's not possible for me to overcome sin that I'm not saved? And, uh, and let me just finish the thought with regard to the message this morning, and that was in parallel with that is if you cannot understand the Bible, then you're not saved. I'm not saying that you, perfectly un- you have to perfectly understand the Bible in order to demonstrate salvation, nor, and there's, here's to work the parallel backwards, nor was I saying that you have to demonstrate perfection in order to demonstrate salvation. Notice the, the wording that I used. And this is the wording that came up in the situation that I was thinking of that I was using an illustration. The person said, I cannot overcome this sin. Actually, there are now two situations in my mind that I'm thinking of. One person said, I I simply cannot stop doing that to this person, this sin. I cannot. Well, my answer to that is, if you cannot, if you are unable, then you must not be saved by definition because salvation brings with it the ability to overcome sin. It doesn't mean that it's going to automatically go away. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be a struggle. But if you're not even engaging the battle and you're just saying, look, I can't, I'm, I just, it's impossible. In the case that I was originally thinking of, the person later became a born-again believer and suddenly had you know, seemingly miraculous ability to overcome that addictive sin that they were involved in. It wasn't really miraculous. I mean, it was because it was salvation, but I mean, it was like, oh, now, okay, now, you know, the power of sin has been broken. Maybe that's another way to say it. If you're unsaved, the power of sin has not been broken over your life. If you are saved, then the power of sin has been broken and you are able to engage the battle and have some level of success in that endeavor. So in no way, and I think all of you here tonight, I don't know about everybody online because I can't see who you are, but Nobody here would, would mistake uh, me to be teaching perfectionism. I have railed against perfectionism from day one of my ministry here practically, so there's no way that I could be thinking of that. The reality is, in fact, let's go to 1 John because this came up in my conversation earlier today. This is a, this is a reality that people uh, sometimes find a little hard to accept it seems to be fairly clear. It's in 1 John chapter 3. Whoops. I'm going to get there. 1 John in chapter 3, verse number 6. Well, verse 5. As, and you know that he, Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, if, there, if there's ever a verse that could be mistaken as a perfectionist doctrine, that could be it. It says, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And what the, the whole meaning of this hinges on the present tense form of the verb here. Whoever abides in him does not consistently or make it a practice or have a habitual lifestyle of sin. That's what it means. It doesn't mean perfectionism. In fact, John He's already set the table so that perfectionism is not on the table. In 1 John chapter 1, he says, if we say that we have no sin, what? We're a liar and the truth is not in us. So perfectionism isn't even on the table that we're looking at here. It's not on the shelf. It's, it's in the trash bin, okay? It's not an issue. It's not a thing. And so he must be saying that the reality for a believer is his lifestyle is not like the sinner's lifestyle, Little children, he says in verse 7, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Then verse 9, another 
one just like six, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his, that is God's seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In fact, what happens to the believer is he cannot happily continue in sin, nor can he even continue miserably in sin. He has to stop eventually because God makes sees to it that that's the case. So uh, we are transformed by God's grace. That's just there's no way around dealing with that and, and accepting that truth from God's word. And if you are trying to make, and this is what it is, make excuses that, well, I cannot, I don't have the ability to overcome sin. What you're saying is the salvation that God provides does not give with it the ability to conquer sin, even though we're told that we don't sin in a lifestyle fashion after we come into faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you don't struggle. As I've said that already. I don't need to repeat it, but I think you get the point. So we weren't teaching anything about perfectionism, and uh, hopefully if somebody mistook that, uh, this uh, will correct that misunderstanding and, and help us. Uh, but truly, my point was to say this morning, that was just an illustration. The point this morning was, if you don't have regeneration, you're not going to understand the Bible truly. You're not going to understand its significance, its real meaning, its implications, its importance, or what, however you want to say it. Um, you, you just aren't going to be able to get it because these things are spiritually discerned, not uh, fleshly discerned. Okay, so that's the perfectionism issue, and I think I'll, I'll put that to, uh, to rest for now. I had a second question from one of our brothers here in the church, and I'll share with you uh, little excerpts of it. Uh, the, he said, the question comes out of one of the statements you made that gifts cease. Let me pause there and say, that is, um, the way it's written is a little too broad. It is really what I said was the miraculous or sign gifts have ceased. So in particular, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, it was knowledge, prophecy, and tongues uh, either have, have been set aside or will cease. Remember the two verbs that we saw there in that section. So uh, those gifts will cease, but not, and here's the question again, but not necessarily God performing miracles. And I do believe that I said that explicitly. I, I didn't say that God cannot do miracles. Uh, and then the question, and, and the reason that I have that caveat in there is that I believe that regeneration is a miracle. I don't I can't see that it's at all a natural or ordinary providence kind of situation. Now, the issue about the gifts ceasing is really that God doesn't give those abilities to individual representatives of the gospel today. So I've also said that, and, and maybe I should back up, why did God give those gifts? Well, not just to show off. I mean, he gave them to, and not only to just accomplish whatever the thing was, the, the healing or whatever, but it was to authenticate his messengers. It was to say, hey, you know, this man is working the signs of an apostle, so, you know, put up your antennas here. He is an apostle. He is a representative of Christ, and you need to pay attention to, to his message. Um, so it's the, it's the gifting of individuals to do those miraculous things that has ceased, and I suppose we could say, you know, in the nature of the gift, uh, like the gift of tongues, if, you don't, if, if God doesn't gift individuals to do that, there's not going to be like tongues speaking out of, you know, midair with no person attached to them. So that just entirely disappears. Uh, the gift of um, knowledge and prophecy, if you don't have a person associated with it, then it's not going to be at all a thing anymore. Now the question comes up with the miracle of healing. The miracle of healing is a little different because you could imagine, as I have wondered, uh, God does not need an individual person gifted with the gift of healing in order to be able to work a healing of some disease or some cancer or something like that. So that's a little bit of a different category. You don't, you don't need to have a person for that sort of thing to occur, at least I'm speaking hypothetically. So uh, I have 
by default understood that God can, not only can, but may choose to heal somebody either through normal means or through uh, miraculous means. However, I don't know the difference between those necessarily. You know what I'm saying? Most times, most times healing is uh, we attribute to ordinary providence, to regular, uh, normal, you know, uh, uh, activities, normal things. You know, your immune system finally overcame that virus. Uh, The doctors applied the right chemotherapy and radiation and surgery and immunotherapy to get rid of your cancer. And, you know, you look at that and you say, wow, thanks to God for that, uh, you know, restoration to health uh, or extension of life. But, uh, and, and there are even cases that seem almost impossibly difficult. Uh, and, you know, you've probably heard of situations and said, well, that, that just doesn't seem natural. I mean, that doesn't seem normal. So what to do about that? So for me, the situation is a little murky because I cannot say for sure that God did a miracle to heal such and such. It may have been that you know they took the right vitamins and their immune system got supercharged and fixed the problem or something. Um, so the question goes on, if, if God will perform miracles in this age, and I haven't closed the door on that, but I have closed the door on individuals being able to, you know, snap their fingers or touch somebody or their shadow pass over somebody like Peter, Paul. I've closed on that, foreclosed on that, but certainly not on God's ability to perform miracles. Should we pray for miraculous healing? So my, without going on further into the question, I would say right now, I don't think we should pray to God to ask him to heal in a particular way. Ask him to heal somebody, that's fine. But don't put him in the, okay, it needs to be a miracle or it's such an impossible case, God, you have to do a miracle versus uh, you know, the normal means that are used to heal. I would also say that sometimes we pray for miraculous or, or any kind of healing We've got to recognize I'm speaking to a church of people and an audience of people where people have prayed many, many times, maybe carelessly about this issue, you know, that they want somebody healed so badly, they just pray whatever, you know, miracle, not miracle, regular means, normal means, or special providence or something like that. They just want somebody healed. But we have to recognize that it is often God's will that people not be healed in the way that we're thinking, you know, that they're, they're 87 years old and uh, they've got cancer and we pray for them to be healed and we want them to live till they're 107. Well, maybe God only wants them to live till they're 88 and he's going to call them to heaven by their, before by their 88th year or in their 89th year or whatever. And so um, we often pray for people to not go to heaven in the time that God has planned for them to go to heaven. You know what I'm saying? And if God takes that person to heaven, guess what? They are healed, in fact, from the disease that troubled their body. So I have those caveats. Don't pray for God to kind of box him in and say he has to do it a certain way, excuse me, or that he even may do it at all. Maybe we need to come to a point of maturity where we recognize that Maybe it's best for us to pray for God's grace to help them through the trial that they're in, whether or not God decides to heal them. And, uh, you know, experience God's grace in even in dying. And that is uh, a reality that we have to face. So the question goes on. It seems, in my experience, listening to people pray, that we seem to ask God for miraculous healing, but only if it seems like, I'll re, kind of refigure the question, only if it seems like that's the only way. So only if it seems possible for a particular disease. Uh, that is, it's, 
not uncommon, or it is common for people to pray for miraculous healing of cancer. But no one prays for a miraculous healing of, say, uh, our brother Kevin's foot problem, right? We just say, well, there's going to have to be uh, maybe surgery and a cast and physical therapy and time and all these kind of normal, ordinary means. We don't pray for people to regrow a limb that's been um, amputated, do we? I mean, it would be nice if we were all like frogs and we could just regrow our tails and our, oh, our tails, we don't have tails, but our arms and legs and hands and feet and all of that sort of thing. We don't pray for uh, uh, the correction of uh, blindness necessarily. If somebody was born blind, yet uh, Jesus' healings, the question goes on, largely falls into the category of a complete transformation rather than unseen disease. Uh, I'm not sure if I follow that entirely. Uh, He often healed things like um, demon possession, which was externally manifested, but an internal problem. Or he healed a guy with dropsy, which may have been the result of cancer, some kind of swelling that was internal. Um, So the, the end of the question is, it seems one should ask for both extreme uh, healing, I think it means, and more basic healing. Okay, or ask for any method or ask for neither. So... I guess I don't have any disagreement with that, brother. <laughs> um, I, I guess I'm say, what I'm saying is I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask God any specific way. God, if it's your will, heal that person, please. Use whatever means. I've often prayed that way. Use whatever means are, are at your disposal. And, uh, and that means that I am not antagonistic toward the medical community. Some... Christians have gotten into this mindset where they almost look down upon normal means as if it's a cop-out, a faith cop-out. You know what I mean by that? They just don't. If, if I go there and do that, then I'm like uh, the king who you know, went to the physicians because my feet were, were uh, is that Ahaziah? Ahaz? Asa, Asa, right, that's right. He's diseased in his feet. And went to the physicians, but the thing was, it's not necessarily wrong to go to the physicians, but he didn't seek the Lord, right? We've got to seek the Lord about these matters. But people who don't want to do vaccinations and they don't want to do blood transfusions and they don't want to have medical intervention of any sort like that, I think they're um, demonstrating that they are kind of only asking for the more extreme version of healing and not the more basic or uh, ordinary providence that God provides for us. And I have a a real problem with that because God has given the human race wisdom uh, and knowledge about medical things, and we can make good progress on a lot of problems that, uh, well, we couldn't years ago, but we understand them better now. I mean, think of the frequency of surgery. How many of us have had surgery you know, when 100 years ago, 200 years ago, if you had any surgery, any, any hole cut in your body, you were at liable, liability to die because of the infection that would set in because the surgeon didn't wash his hands or some crazy thing like that. Uh, but it's routine stuff now, and it makes good scientific sense. So we don't uh, eschew the normal means, and I'm not ready in my theological understanding, to foreclose entirely on divine miracle. Uh, Some people are more ready for that, and maybe I will be if I understand it better in the long run. But um, as I said, I can't tell the difference anyway. So I'm just going to leave it up to God to decide what he wants to do. And be glad that I can participate in his program by prayer. I mean, I can ask God to, to help a brother or sister or someone and trust him to do that. Um, and God has already figured all of that into his plan and program from eternity past. Every prayer, every possible means, every doctor visit, every 
piece of technology, every, all of that woven together so that you know, our brother who has a health problem or another brother that has a health problem or a sister or whatever, that God knows what's going to happen with that. He's already arranged it. He's already taken care of it. I mean, why should we worry? God's already got it all figured out. So, yeah, that's quite an interesting situation. So I'm not sure that I've given a fully satisfactory answer, but that is, uh, that is my cut at it for this evening. So... Any other questions tonight? If there was another one we could take impromptu, I could do that. But if not, I can go to my prepared message, which is a little bit easier in a way. Maybe not as dynamically interesting because you're not stumping the pastor. Okay, Matthew chapter 3 then. Let's turn over there to the first of the Gospels in Matthew chapter 3. In our continuing series in the Gospel of Matthew, we've looked at the birth narrative of Christ in chapters 1 and 2 and the early life of our Lord in Nazareth, the end of chapter 2. We looked at uh, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3 in which uh, Matthew introduces John the Baptist quite abruptly in the uh, narrative here and just says he came preaching in the wilderness and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, think of all the preparation, the, the normal, ordinary providence that went into the preparation of John. His parents raising him up as a child, he has to learn the Bible. He has to be in the synagogue. He has to go to Jerusalem for the, for the feasts. Every male is to appear before the Lord three times a year. And he does all of that. He keeps the law. His parents are blameless. And uh, for years and years and years, he's preparing. And then about the time that he's 29, 30 years old, he's ready. He's ready to go. Uh, you know, that was the case uh, for me. Let's see, when did God call me to uh, pastor the church here? I was 32. So, uh, but I had been ministering for some time after that in my later 20s. But it, it, God used all of that time in preparation for us. And, you know, your life may be something like that, and you... Um, you know, you may say, why, why am I doing what I'm doing right now? I mean, I'm 40, 50 years old, and I haven't accomplished what I think God would have me to accomplish yet. Well, just wait. I mean, be active for the Lord, obviously, but don't, don't feel like you've got to have everything done in the first few decades of your life. It may be that the most significant time of your ministry will be when you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s, when you minister to young people or to... Uh, in different circumstances and what you anticipate and God had prepared you all those years. I mean, think of Moses. When he was 40, he had a false start. He had to wait till he was 80 to take the people out of Egypt. I mean, imagine you're 80 and you're going to lead the people on that kind of journey and you're going to go before the Pharaoh and all of that. And wow, what a situation that is. Evidently, God had some things that Moses had to uh, uh, you know, brush up on for 40 years in the backwoods of Midian while he's tending his father-in-law's sheep and raising a family and all of that. What a, what a situation. So anyway, some number of years has gone by. John appears on the scene. He's uh, preaching a gospel of repentance for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Uh, the kingdom of heaven, in fact, was so at hand that it was a mere uh, six months behind him. You know, Jesus born just those months after John was, and he was about to appear on the scene. And we saw in verses 13 through uh, 17, in fact, that he had done that um, and came up to John uh, from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. I'm reading now from Matthew 3 and verse 14. And John tried to prevent him that's an interesting word there. It says he... Does your Bible have that tried in italics? Tried to prevent him. We'll get to that word in just a moment. Saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. 
When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus, in uh, verse uh, 13, just kind of appears on the scene, kind of reminiscent of what Malachi said at the end of the prophets in the Old Testament. What did he say? The Lord will suddenly appear at his temple. Amazing. So Matthew reports that Jesus came from Galilee, his home region, to John at the Jordan River. This was the plan, and it had to happen, as we'll see and explain in some detail in a few moments. It was not just happenstance that Jesus came along and, and uh, went, oh, that's interesting. I see this guy baptizing. I think I'll go down there and check it out. No, he traveled 70 miles in particular or so to go to this baptism. He knew he had to do this part of the, the work that God had to set aside for his son. And just like John, or uh, yeah, well, John in chapter 4 records that Jesus had to go to Samaria. He had to go there. Now, the Jews wouldn't go there. They would always go around there. But he had to go there because he had uh, to see a woman in Sychar near Jacob's well and uh, to uh, then minister to the city of people that were there. And many believed upon him at that time. So Jesus had to make this journey 70 miles. Uh, and this is because, among other things, Jesus was the one for whom John was making the paths straight. So he had to get in connection with John's ministry somehow. Jesus coming associated Jesus with the message of repentance that God preached. And I'm going to say that in different ways and connections tonight. But I want you to just get that idea that this is the beginning of that association with John's message. And he came with the purpose to be baptized by John. And John, I'll say it mildly, hesitated to baptize Jesus. I mean, it's like, um, it's like when, a, when a revered master teacher uh, has taught you what he knows and has prepared you for teaching, and then you find him sitting in your class, and you're teaching, and you're like, you know, why don't you come up here, and I'll go sit there. Yeah, that's definitely understandable, but you know what he says, the master teacher? No, you're prepared. You go to it. That's now your role, and uh, I have to pass off the scene eventually. I'm getting old, and I have to go away, and you have to stand in the place, fill in the gap. Well, this is John the Baptist. He says, hey, baptize? Baptize? What do you mean? I can't do that. Jesus had no need of repentance. John knew that because he was soon to declare him the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So he knew that Jesus was not a sinner. He had to be the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And so he could not have any one, one stitch of sin in his life. Uh, Jesus was not coming to confess his sins in the Jordan, not coming for repentance. And so John recognized that instead of him needing something from me, I need something from him. What did he need from him? Well, what did John preach? He preached this repentance and said to them, in addition to repentance, I'm preparing the way for coming, somebody coming after me he says, I am, uh, verse 11, I'm baptizing you with water, but he who's coming after me is mightier. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John knows that he needs some of this action here, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and, and not Jesus needing the baptism of John. In fact, when I said that John mildly stated, hesitated to baptize Jesus, I think this translation does well to say he tried to prevent him. Now, I said that verb is interesting because in Greek, it's just the word in an imperfect, he prevented him. But as our brother will soon learn in his Greek grammar, if he hasn't already, that this is, I think, what they call a conative imperfect. This is an attempt to do something. Um, it's not going to succeed at preventing 
But it's it, what it really means is that he was going about trying to prevent him, and it wasn't going to happen that way. It was going to have to go through the way that Jesus said it was going through. Now, John had a very fine reason. I need to be baptized by you. I can't, I can't baptize you. Um, so he tried, but it was not destined to come to pass the way that John envisioned, rather the opposite. And so Jesus answered and says to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John, he allowed him. So Jesus insisted, based on the need to fulfill all righteousness, he told John, stop trying to prevent this. Instead, permit me to partake of this baptism. Now, the whole, the, the whole next part of my message is just going to be to answer this one question. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? That has thrown me for a loop over the years, and perhaps you as well. What does that mean? I mean, when you initially read it, you might think, whoa. I mean, you're saying that if, if Jesus doesn't do this or he's lacking something, he's going to sin? Uh, there's something wrong that needs to be corrected? That's not the case, really. Remember this, just to start out with. So, how, how did I approach this? I, I clearly asked myself this question in my study. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? And then I looked at a few commentator, uh, commentaries, and I said, boy, they're not giving me a lot of help here because it's a difficult passage. And there, there are some ideas that were helpful, but some you look in the library, and well, they just kind of just glossed right over it. You know, it's difficult. So I prayed, and I just let you in on my, my inner work here, and I said, Lord, I want to understand this better. Now, I can't say that I understand it perfectly right now, but I can say that I feel like I understand it better that the Lord did answer that request this past week. Remember, first of all, this general truth we're talking about righteousness being fulfilled. Righteousness has positive demands that must be fulfilled. But the fact that you haven't done some particular righteous demand yet does not necessarily mean you're unrighteous at the moment. It may simply mean that you haven't come to the time or place where that is appropriate or possible or the opportunity has been there for you to avail yourself of it. And that's the case for Jesus here. I mean, he's just come 70 miles. It is now time for him to do this. It wasn't time for him to do it when he was 12 years old or it wasn't time when he was 20 years old. It's now time when he's about 30 years old for him to do this. So maybe the, the action was not needed yet or it was not demanded yet or it was not appropriate yet, but righteousness does have its positive demands, its expectations. Now, of course, if you come to the place where the opportunity has presented itself and you have said no to it, that righteousness that is required of you, and you said no, then if you pass that stage and are recalcitrant, not doing that thing, and I know I'm speaking very abstractly, but if you pass that opportunity, then that is sinful. But just because you haven't done it yet doesn't mean you're necessarily in sin. So Jesus was not in sin because he hasn't, hadn't been baptized yet. It just wasn't yet the time until today, verse 13 and 14. So the time has come that Jesus must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So we're noting that righteousness has these positive demands. Jesus is going to carry that out. He's not in sin at this point. But what does it mean, again, to fulfill all righteousness? What was the righteous requirement that had to be accomplished? And some have tried to say, well, there's some a statement in the prophets that's not recorded, or there's something hidden and deep in the Old Testament that requires this, and I reject both of those out of hand. There's just nothing that you're going to find that's going to be any, with any kind of clarity that's going to say this. I mean, there was no baptism in the Jewish law, no, no baptism in the Mosaic law that was required like this. Now, it's certainly the case that the law of Moses taught the people of their sin and showed them their need for repentance and faith, right? 
salvation always come by grace through faith in God or in the Lord Jesus Christ after he came and was revealed. Uh, so the, the way of salvation is the same in every age. And the response of the sinner to repent of their sin and turn to God is the same in every age. Um, but the, clear, the kind of specificity, I'll say, the specifics of getting baptized by John or getting baptized by anybody in the Jordan or anywhere else in association with repentance was not a requirement of the law of Moses. So in my study, I put together a few thoughts, and let me give them to you now. I have three kind of pieces of, a, of, a, of an idea here that connect with this notion of fulfilling all righteousness. First of all, here's what it means, first of all. Number one, Jesus is identified with John's message by so being baptized. He's not identified as one who needs to level out the hilly ground of his life. He's not identified with John's message as one himself who needs to straighten the crooked paths. Rather, he is identified with John's message as the one who will make the washing of sins possible. He was the one for whom the paths were being made straight, and so he gets connected into this whole program by being baptized by John. And so his baptism doesn't precisely have the same meaning as that of the sinner next to him who got baptized next or the one before, that was baptized before him. Okay, it's, a, it's a different thing, but it does associate John's message or Jesus with John's message. And so that's part of fulfilling all righteousness. Secondly, not only was Jesus identified with John's message, he was identified with John's people. He had to be identified with sinful humanity. He was going to be their high priest, touched by their infirmities, and became as closely associated with them as possible, as it was possible for his holiness to do so. So Jesus was identifying with John's people. Let me... And, and, and how in, in that uh, sense he was identifying with John's people and that they were the repenters and he was the one who was providing the means for their repentance to actually have effect. Let me uh, mention to you just this idea of a connection with, uh, of Jesus with sinners in Hebrews 5. It says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Now that's talking about the Levitical priest. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he, as he was called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but he was called to be high priest. And go back to chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in this incident in Matthew 3, Jesus is being connected to, identified with, getting into a solidarity with the believers of John's message. So Jesus is identifying with John's message and John's people, but in a different sense than those normal people. By, you know, they were identifying to John by saying, I'm a sinner. Jesus was identifying by saying, I'm the savior of those sinners. That's a blessing, isn't it? I'm the one to whom John has been pointing and for whom John has been blazing a pathway of righteousness. It's a wonderful thing. So Jesus exhibits in this baptism a solidarity with John's message as well as a solidarity with John's people. Okay? And I, that's what I understand in part it means to be to fulfill all righteousness. But there's a third aspect to this. And as I see it, now this is something that I, I'm not you know, able to put a footnote on and say, look, I found this in such and such commentator. Um, as I was thinking about this, I, I realized, why do I stop with Jesus identifying with John's people, with the folks that responded to John's message? I need to... I feel like it's necessary theologically to connect Jesus 
with all sinners, not just John's audience members who responded to the baptism. Jesus is also identifying with future, future to him, future sinners who will become Christ's people. Let me try to explain this. I see kind of an interesting connection here. This is not only true for those people present in John's day, it has an application in the present day for you as well. If we are in Christ, he stands in our place so that we are connected back to the ministry of John. We too, in our position in Christ, we are in him, right? We are connected, we've been baptized into Christ. We're saying that we repent and confess our sins and identify with John's message. I mean, do you identify with John's message? Of course, you repent, you confess your sins, you say, I'm a sinner, I need salvation. That's basic. We cannot, of course, physically get John to baptize us to show that we have a connection to his message because of the distance of time that has intervened from John until now. But we can, in Christ, say today that we have a unified solidarity with John the Baptist in his message of repentance. In other words, you could say, I'm like one of John's people. Now, I'm more than that, as we'll see in a moment, but I am that. He preached it, and we acknowledge in Christ that we believe it too. Christ was baptized for us in that baptism because we cannot be baptized in that baptism. So we're connected to Christ. Christ is baptized in that baptism, and he is kind of, in a sense, standing in our place, and we're connected to John's message that way. Just like those who went out from Jerusalem and Judea and the regions of the Jordan, we too are saying that we repent, we confess, we want to humble ourselves. We want to be well-prepared terrain for the Lord. Remember, level out the hilly places, straighten out the crooked places. That's what we want in our hearts. Obviously, talking metaphorically, we're talking about a spiritual condition of humility and of, of uh, repentance, of penitence. Our lofty self-view, the mountains, are brought low, and our repentance shows that we want the crooked ways to be made straight. And so we consider ourselves, through Jesus, to have a solidarity with John's message. That is righteousness. Why? Because you must repent and believe the gospel. If you don't, that's unrighteous. So there's righteousness in that, and that's what Jesus did for us so that we could do the same in him. Now, uh, this, this is where I'll get in a little bit of hot water, perhaps. Uh, a couple of pastors that are very highly esteemed and, and reformed in their soteriology have written a couple of things. Uh, for instance, MacArthur writes this, this act of baptism was a necessary part of the righteousness he secured for sinners. He's reflecting the view which is called active obedience. Now, I haven't taught you that or what that is, but basically, uh, well, let me go on and I'll maybe add an explanation to it. That is that the baptism is part of that obedience of of Christ's active obedience on our behalf. R.C. Sproul, who's with the Lord, was even more pointed in teaching that Jesus was baptized in order to accomplish the active obedience of Christ and that is imputed to you as a believer. That's what active obedience is. Christ not only took the uh, punishments of the, that the law of God demanded, but he also perfectly fulfilled the law, and that perfection is imputed to you, that merit, that righteousness is imputed to you, and you're seen in him as having completed all of that law. Um, but I ask the question of myself, and this is, gets into kind of my kind of difficulty with the whole act of obedience view. Uh, Was I ever required by God to be baptized by John in order to be saved? Or was I even asked by God to complete or keep the whole Mosaic law? And my answer to that is no. I I am and was a Gentile. I never was under the law of Moses in the particulars of that. So there has to be something else than just Jesus keeping the law of Moses in terms of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But I set that aside for the moment. So I'm doubtful that this approach is quite right. Could I be convinced later on? Certainly many men of God have been. 
but I am required to repent of sin, and confession is how I show that. But I'm not required to take John's baptism in particular. So the fulfillment of righteousness has not to do with Jesus himself, but with those Jesus represents. And here's where it gets. He gets associated with the message, and he becomes associated with the, um, the people of John and also with the people after John's day, including ourselves. He is baptized, that is, Jesus is, so that they could, in connection with him, themselves be connected with John's message of preparation for the Messiah. Now, I don't think we need to go to the extent that MacArthur and Sproul do to suggest that his, that his act is imputed to me, this particular act, after all, the believer really does express confession and repentance over sin. I don't, I, that, that is not imputed to me. That is an act that is properly gifted to me. Sir, sure, is gifted to me, but it is an act. It is something that I am responsible to participate in. Um, it's that he's connected to Jesus the believer is in spirit baptism means that I'm also connected to John's preparatory message. Jesus did not confess for me. I confessed myself. Of course, he gave me the gift of repentant faith and all of that, I understand. But of course, I was, I was gifted that by God. I was convinced by his spirit that it was the only sensible course of action for me to repent and confess. But I did exercise repentant faith and, ex and demonstrate that fruit of repentance in confession. It is necessary that I, as part of true righteousness, confess and repent because, well, not only future judgment, but also because of the coming of the kingdom of Christ. And so in Christ, I can be associated with John's baptism even though it's not offered any longer. And I guess kind of behind my statement, too, is the idea that when we do Christian baptism like we did up here just a few months ago in the tank, we're not doing John's baptism. We're doing a baptism which is which is m m very deeply symbolic of the work of Christ and our association with him in death, burial, and resurrection and all of that. It's more than just a baptism unto repentance. It's a baptism unto newness of life. But even though I've said all I've said about John's baptism and kind of maybe, you know, shaking your mind a little bit to think, oh, I've kind of, I do kind of have some association with John's baptism. I mean, I've, I've repented like those people did. Um, but don't think that that's enough. In fact, in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, Paul encountered some people who had received John's baptism, and he said, what do you know about Jesus? Well, we just know about John's baptism. When did you receive the Holy Spirit? We don't even know there is the Holy Spirit. So Paul had to say, okay, you know, stop, pause. Hey, we got to kind of upgrade your understanding here. You got to get to uh, version 2.0 here. You're a little behind the times. And so he preached Christ to them, told them about the Holy Spirit. They were baptized with Christian baptism. God did give them a gift of the Holy Spirit, and that became evident that they were, they were saved. They were God-fearing people. They had responded to that which they knew but they had not the opportunity yet to respond to the full gospel message. So Paul corrected that. And so uh, John the Baptist's message is deficient. There needs to be more to the Christian gospel than that. Now, finally, uh, with regard to this business of baptism, the, symbol, the symbolism of it, I think, is important as well. Besides the fulfillment of all righteousness, which we've tried to detail, Jesus is pre-enacting a picture of his death, his burial and his resurrection. He's providing a picture of what Christian baptism will look like. Not exactly what it will be, but something similar to it. Can you, can you miss the symbolism of him going down into the water and coming back up out of the water in order to provide the salvation that will wash away the sins of John's disciples and of all mankind who come to him? So John understood now what was going on, and he permitted him. Well, maybe he didn't understand everything you know, perfectly, but he knew, okay, Jesus told me I've got, to, I've got to be baptized, and so he does that. Now, in verses 16 and 17, um, I might have to just uh, give you...
give you the brief version of this, the cliff note version, and then we'll carry on with the next time. In 16 and 17, when he had been baptized, with all of this descriptive stuff before that we've done, Jesus came up immediately from the water and the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. This is one of those rare times when the heavens are opened. You ever seen the heavens opened? (laughs) Well, yeah, when it was raining cats and dogs, the heavens opened up on us. No, that's not the kind of heavens we're talking about here. That's the atmospheric heavens. The uh, heavenly dwelling place of God opened to him, and the Spirit of God descended from there. Where else in the Bible do you see an opening of heaven? Can you think of other examples? Stephen is one in Acts 7. He stood just before he was stoned to death. He saw Jesus standing, awaiting to receive him at the right hand of God in heaven. Paul experienced something like this. Uh, I don't know that, I wasn't going to say that he did on the road to Damascus. That was more of a blinding experience than a seeing experience. But uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, you know, I know a person 14 years ago. I don't know if I was in the body, out of the body, but I was up there. I saw it. The kind of heavens were kind of opened for him, although the language is a little bit different. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 1 and verse 51, maybe I'll just read that for you. Maybe a verse or two before that. In John chapter 1, let's see, where is the helpful verse to begin at? Um, at this whole section I'd have to read, but you remember Philip went and told Nathaniel about the Messiah, and Nathaniel said, you know, can any, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus talks to him, and so before, you know, you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, you know, way off where a normal person couldn't see him. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, whatever that entailed... Uh, and that actually may be uh, a few months later than John's baptism when the heavens opened and the voice of God came out of there and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased to hear him. Um, Peter saw the heavens opened. Remember that in Acts chapter 10, the heavens opened and he saw a sheet come down from heaven with all kinds of animals on it and voice from heaven came and saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter got into a little argument with God, bad idea. And uh, God showed him that vision three times. And Peter understood the lesson of that after a little while. Um, And then Jesus uh, is going to return from an open heaven. And I'll just make this our closing little salvo here in Revelation 19 and verse number 11. John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So John sees Jesus about to return at the second coming, after the end of the tribulation, before the millennial kingdom, the premillennial return of Christ. And this is the opening of heaven. So we see an event here that doesn't happen very often but occasionally Scripture records it. Heavens were opened, and the Spirit of God descended and alighted upon him like a dove. There's some other occurrences like this. I mean, Ezekiel saw God, didn't he? A vision of God in Ezekiel 1, that very sometimes confusing passage of Scripture. Isaiah seems to see God, remember? I saw the Lord upon a throne high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. You're kind of not sure if it's a vision that he was in the temple or a vision of heaven, the heavenly temple, Um, but he saw something that was a heavenly vision. And uh, so this rare occurrence happens right there with John the Baptist, some other future disciples of the Lord and disciples of John, and they saw this happen, eyewitnesses to this great event. So we'll stop there. We'll pick up with uh, 16 and 17 the next time. 
trust that's been helpful to you tonight. Let's pray. Father, as we've been here, we've also, we also hope that our young people have had a, a wonderful time upstairs and that they've learned a little bit more about the scriptures. My son, for example, was reciting Philippians 1.6, and I pray that they will understand that, that the work that is begun in a person that God guarantees to complete in the day of Christ Jesus is the work of salvation, and that they will understand how that can give them great confidence that even though their, their, their understanding may not be fully formed, they may falter in their conduct and their faith from time to time, and not be yet fully matured, that, God, you will bring that work to completion in them if they truly trusted in Christ. We pray that will be the case. And for this that we've looked at today, thank you. Even if we don't fully grasp all that it means that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in doing this baptism with John, we thank you that he did and that he is the perfect Savior and that we can be associated with him and and uh, through the wonder of the solidarity we have being connected in union with Christ, we can have a connection back all the way to John and his message as well. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.